Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you. I do want to spend some time looking at a doctrine that is called the second coming of Christ, uh, which is a little bit not quite right, because Christ has come many times, uh, most frequently in the Eucharist, but his final coming is the way I like to put it. And we we discuss, we, we affirm it in the Nicene Creed. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Um, I've always believed this uh, as a Christian, but I haven't always felt it. It was one of those um, doctrines that seemed a long way off, and people have been expecting it for a long time. How relevant is it? So over the years, when I first noticed that that was the case, probably 10, 15 years ago, I've been trying to enhance my appreciation for this article of faith. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead in his kingdom will have no end. And one thing that's helped has been realizing that the promise of his coming is just one more example in the long history of biblical spirituality in which God's people live on a promise. If you notice, all through biblical history, God is lifting his people along, you know, life's got very troubled waters, and God's kind of created a raft of great and precious promises. And we're buoyed along on that raft. Uh, these these promises orient us to the future. They direct us. They motivate us to make changes in our lives uh, and to long for deeper union with him. In fact, biblical history is actually structured around these promises and their fulfillments. So you have the promise to Noah of the coming flood, and Noah orders his life according to that promise. It builds the ark. Salvation comes to his household as a result of him ordering his life to that promise. Abraham orders his life to the promise that his offspring would be as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven. And um, he and his wife Sarah's story really receives its meaning from this divine promise. Moses is called to lead God's people where? Into the promised land. King David is promised that there will always be a descendant on his throne, Isaiah promises of a coming kingdom. Uh, It's going to be a kingdom of love, a kingdom of peace, kingdom of justice. Jeremiah offers the promise of the new covenant. And these promises are what keeps the people of God oriented to the future. We're awaiting, and this is true, again, with the promise of Jesus' coming at the end of history. We're awaiting the fulfillment of what God has promised. And it doesn't get much better than God making the promise. We not only wait, though, we work, we worship, we bear witness to the coming kingdom that we've been promised. Oh, we should also mention, too, that God has given us, what, the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is given to us as a a down payment on the future. It's a tangible guarantee that God's fulfilling his promises progressively through history. So the promise of his return is part of the guarantee that God is offering a salvation now richer than the salvation that he granted Noah and his family. It's, it's greater than what he offered Abraham and his tribes. It's greater than what he offered Moses and the nation, and even greater than what he offered David with his empire. In Christ's church, the entire human family is offered redemption. That's the promise that uh, 
all of humanity is intended to embrace uh, the will of God so that uh, God's people will include uh, all kindred, all tongues, all tribes, even beyond Abraham's wildest imagination. So heaven becomes the ultimate promised land of those who are united to Christ by faith and baptism. You know, remember Jeremiah's new covenant. What is that? Well, that's instituted by Christ's shed blood and broken body, now given to us in the Eucharist, the sign of the new covenant. Isaiah's vision of the peaceable kingdom, that's actually inaugurated by the coming of Jesus, and wherever he reigns in the hearts of his people, you can see the kingdom of God existing. So human history is moving towards the ultimate fulfillment of all these divine promises uh, that can be summed up as the return of Christ, or the second coming of Christ, or the final coming of Christ. And history does have a direction. It starts out in an uncultivated garden. But where does it end? It ends in a glorious heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. The, the human story has meaning and purpose. It's got direction. And the second coming of Jesus is at the climax of the story. Um, now, everyone, of course, wants to know when will Christ return, right? This has been asked all through church history, and history is full of failed guesses as well. I mean, the year after I began hosting a talk radio program in 1987, there was the furor over 88 reasons why the rapture would occur in 1988. And every few years during my adult life, I've been aware of some new end times furor uh, in various segments of uh, Christianity. Sometimes it has to do with the coming rapture, or it has to do with the tribulation, or it has to do with building of an end times temple in Jerusalem, or it has to do with the destruction of the um, Muslim Dome of the Rock, or, you know, it's it's always got little twists uh, to these uh, expectations. And it's easy to mock these speculations. But in truth, if we believe that Christ is coming again, it really is only natural for us to ask, what will be the signs of his coming? I mean, that's what the apostles asked they, directly. They asked Jesus after his resurrection and in the 40 days before his ascension. And Luke in Acts chapter 1 uh, tells us that the apostles asked that question. Now, here's what we know from Scripture and from the teaching of the church. Uh, number one, Christ's final coming could happen at any moment. He specifically refused to date the time. Um, and in particular, Christians have been living, and the letter of 1 John points this out, that Christians have been living since the first century in what's called the last hour. So we're living in the age which is characterized by the expectation of Christ's imminent return. Now, there are groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses that claim he's already returned invisibly, but that's not the teaching of the Catholic Church or the teaching of Scripture, where Christ's return is not secret or invisible. It's personal. It's bodily. It's perceptible. You can see it. It's not hidden. It's, it's unmistakable. There's nothing nuanced about the return of Jesus. And um, while we can't give a date, we know that his return is delayed because there are certain events yet to occur. This is taught in Scripture, and it's taught, of course, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, so here, before the return of Jesus, 
we're going to see the universal proclamation of the gospel. Uh, everybody is going to have to have the promise, or excuse me, the offer of salvation in the gospel. Secondly, the original covenant people of God, the Jews, uh, in some way uh, will recognize their Messiah. It'll be after the full number of the Gentiles have been brought into the covenant. So this is commonly talked about under the banner, the conversion of the Jews. Number three, there's going to be a time of general disorder, which will precede his return, distress. A great tribulation will come upon the world, and even the church uh, is not going to be spared that tribulation. And there's going to be persecutions. They'll increase. Those who lack spiritual discernment are going to fall away from the faith because things are going to get so bad. And then there's going to also be a particular figure who will arise, commonly called the Antichrist, and he's going to spread a religious deception. And that deception will involve a false messiah who will teach that somehow man is God. It will reduce God to man. Um, According to Scripture, though, the kingdom of God will not be fulfilled until the return of the king. The kingdom comes not by human progress, you know, not by evolution. It comes by God's intervention, his victory over that final unleashing of evil, which comes about at the end of time. Um, we, we have to remember that Christ is seated on the throne, and he is reigning and ruling now. And sometimes that gets confused with the idea that Satan is the god of this world. But in Scripture, the idea of the world uh, refers to something quite specific. It's a reference to the world system um, that is organized around—it's a system of survival— that's marked by a drive to accumulate wealth and power, indulge the senses, where the ends justify the means. Uh, that Satan is the god of that world. That is the world system. Jesus is presently reigning from heaven, and his kingdom doesn't originate in this world. Um, so I don't think of Christ's reign as purely future. I mean, it's even now, it's a present reality, and it's easy to forget that when Christ ascended to heaven, he did begin his reign at the right hand of the Father, and we're told that the Father put all things under his feet. So that's happened. Evidences of his kingdom are all around us today. He does perform miraculous signs and wonders. We see healings. We see in the lives of saints um, human beings who have fulfilled uh, what they were called to do. They reflect his glory. They're beautiful. And we are urged to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this prayer is meant to spur us into demonstrating Christ's kingdom. Um, I do think that it's uh, we shouldn't let—there's so much more to say about this— but we shouldn't let the intemperate ravings of unstable brothers and sisters in Christ— those who are fascinated with fruitless speculation about the end, we shouldn't let them deter us from taking his coming with the utmost seriousness that uh, the Church expects. This is a teaching we should reserve with both great joy and great sobriety. And even now we're told that we can get a foretaste of the age to come, because wherever the will of God is done, you get a glimpse of the kingdom— but sacramentally, you can see it 
in the Eucharist. Each Eucharist is, in fact, a coming of Christ. In the Eucharist, we recall the historical event of Christ's crucifixion at the same time that we're preparing for the future event of his final coming. Each Eucharist is a rehearsal for that moment when we will become fully like him, for we will see him as he is. So even now, he's at work within us, making us the men and women he created us to be. As he told his first followers, I will not leave you or forsake you. I will not leave you orphans. I'm Al Crestor.